Father, tonight, we thank you, Lord, as we gather here this evening that there is a resurrection, that there is a hope. Thank you, Lord. We thank you so much that we have that hope. And it's all because you sent your son Jesus to come and to suffer, to give his life so that we could have life. And tonight as we reflect upon that reality, I pray, God, that you would minister in a deep way to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. We began this series last week that we entitled The Suffering Servant, and it's looking at this uh, passage in Isaiah that begins in chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53. It's really a song that has five stanzas. We looked at the first stanza last week, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, and I want to begin reading there tonight, and we'll read down through verse 3 of chapter 53. Behold, the Lord says, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. You know, the Old Testament was riddled by the failures of man. It all started in the garden with Adam. When Adam sinned, when he ate of the forbidden fruit, that started the whole deal. Sin entering into the world and all of the ramifications of it. We have weeds today in our yard because Adam sinned. When my son Aaron was about, oh, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old, we were out in our backyard pulling weeds, and he was like, Dad, you know, where did weeds come from? And I started telling him, you know, about the fall and about Adam, and he, his response was, stupid, Adam. You know? <laughs> but Adam sinned. That's what started it all. Noah sinned after the the flood. Noah gets drunk and Abraham sinned and Moses sinned and the law was unable to bring people to righteousness and the children of Israel were unable to possess the promised land. And then came the time of the judges and the prophets and the kings and, and what we see in that time frame in the Bible, there was constant failing. And then we come to Isaiah. And we find the prophet preaching to a nation that is not listening. He is failing. And all of a sudden, in this train of failure, we hear the voice of God, Behold my servant. 
he shall succeed. He shall prosper. He shall deal prudently. And we looked at last week that that meant that he shall accomplish the purpose of why he came. Last week in the first part of this song, in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, we really saw the ministry of Christ laid out in a nutshell before us. His suffering, His resurrection, and His second coming. It was just, it's all right there. And we talked about that last time. If you missed it, I encourage you to pick up a CD or a DVD of that. But tonight we come to chapter 53 and we see His humble beginnings. And Isaiah begins here, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's arm is often connected in the Old Testament to salvation. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God said to Israel, I will redeem you when they were in bondage there in, in Egypt. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And here Isaiah is telling us something very, very important. That salvation is connected to faith. Salvation is connected to belief. Who has believed our report, he says? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's telling us that God's arm of salvation is revealed to those who believe. It's revealed to those who embrace it by faith. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's the report. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The arm of salvation is revealed to those who believe. But the problem has been is that there's always been those who haven't believed the report. In John chapter 12, verse 37, we read, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now here in verse 2, Isaiah kind of sums up or tells us why some people had a hard time believing the report. In verse 2 of chapter 53, he says, For he, God the Son, Jesus, that's the he, shall grow up before him, God the Father, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And, and here he's talking about his coming. And in his coming, what he's telling us is that he wasn't what the nation of Israel was looking for in a Messiah. He wasn't what they were looking for in home. They were, they were looking for a king. They were looking for a king who was going to ride in on a white stallion, who was going to overthrow the Romans, and who was going to set up his throne. And had he come that way, the nation would have got behind him. They would have got in line right behind him. But he didn't come that way. He came in humility. He came in a way that you and I could know that he could relate to us. He took on flesh. He humbled himself. He became a man. He came in the slow process of birth, born in a manger, born to a poor family. 
So we read in Luke's gospel when, when uh, Mary and Joseph came to dedicate him that they offered the offering of two turtle doves, which was the offering that was allowed in the Old Testament, in the law, when people couldn't afford a lamb. He was born in poverty. He was born into a, a poor family. He was raised in the armpit of Israel, Nazareth. One of the worst places. But you think you have it, bad man. He lived in the armpit of Israel, Nazareth. So much so, Thomas said, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come on. Or Nathaniel said that. When Andrew told him, hey, I've, we found the Messiah. Jesus from Nazareth. No way. Nothing good can come out of that place. Jesus was nothing like you would expect. He came in a form that was nothing like you would expect from a king, a Messiah, God in the flesh. But that's because his first coming, he came as a lamb, not as a king. He came to give his life as a sacrifice. A tender plant, a root out of dry ground. A tender plant tells us of his nature. Tender. He was the most tender human being who has ever walked the face of planet Earth. He was disarming. That's why kids loved Jesus. The little children, they were drawn to him. But he was loved because of that tenderness by all types of people. Young, old, rich, poor. Those who were heathens and those who were religious, they were drawn to him. There was something extremely different about him. A tender plant. Now, in Isaiah chapter 11, he's called the stem out of Jesse or out of the line of David. But that's speaking about his millennial kingdom. Here he's called a tender plant. Here in Isaiah chapter 53, because this is talking about his humiliation. It's God's servant humbled. A tender plant. I did a little study on, online about plants and trees, and basically they, they classify the growth in three categories. There's hardy, tolerant, and tender. A hardy plant is one that is in its natural environment. It's from that climate. It's, a, it's in a climate. It's, it's planted in a region where it thrives. It's like the eucalyptus trees that, that just thrive around here. My neighbor has a whole bunch of them that ruin my swimming pool because they dump their leaves into it. I wish it didn't thrive. I've thought how to poison the thing, but... Uh, but they thrive in this, in this climate. Hardy. And there's, then there's those plants that are tolerant. And a, a plant or tree that is tolerant is one that comes from somewhere else, but it's able to adapt to its environment. A tender plant is one, though, that is exotic in the sense that it comes from a great distance. It's one that is, is never going to be at home in that place. It never feels native in the place that it's put. And because of that, it takes continual care in regards to nutrients and protection from that environment. He was a tender plant, exotic, coming from a far place. A root out of dry ground speaks of something that, that's abnormal. 
Roots taken out of the ground, they don't grow, and it's abnormal. The idea that there's nothing in the soil that sustained him. There was nothing in this life that sustained him. He was sustained from above. A tender plant, a root out of dry ground is one that is not at home or native to the environment. And that's what he was. He was the transplant from eternity. The son of eternity come into time, invading time. A tender plant, not at home. He would say to one young man who wished to follow him in Matthew chapter 8, Lord, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The birds have their nests. They're hardy. This is their environment. Foxes have holes. They fit in in the environment. That's what he's saying. But he's saying the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This isn't my environment. I'm not native to this world. I have no place to rest here. I'm just passing through. I'm never going to adapt. I'm never going to become tolerant to this place. In fact, it's interesting that the only place where it says that Jesus rested his head was on the cross at Calvary when he gave up his spirit. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, he cried out, It is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That same word, he bowed his head as he he rested. Same word used when he says, I have nowhere to rest my head. Nowhere to lay my head. He bowed his head. When? After he cried, it is finished. Now catch this. I find this so intriguing. He finally found a place in this world to rest his head, and it was on the cross. It was after he completed his mission that God had laid out for him to do, that his father had laid out for him to do. It was then that he rested. I want to kind of camp here for a few minutes on this thought tonight before we come to the table of communion. Because you see, Jesus says, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says of you and I that this world is not our home. That we are sojourners here. That we are passing through. And that means, listen closely please, that means we are not going to find rest here. Here. We're not. We're not going to find rest here. There is nothing in the soil of this earth that can sustain us. There is nothing that life has to offer, that this life has to offer, that will fully satisfy us. Not a person, not a position, not a place, not a possession. And that's why. There's a restlessness in your hearts. That's why there's a restlessness in your hearts tonight, because you are longing for something else. There is a built-in longing in your hearts for heaven 
And that built-in longing started the moment that you gave your life to Christ and the Spirit of God came to indwell you. The Spirit of God crying out in your heart, Abba, Father, longing to be with the Father, longing for that intimacy. There's a built-in longing, a built-in restlessness in your very soul, in your very heart for heaven. And that is why you can get a great job and still feel restless. That's why you can meet the right person, get married, and still have feelings, as great as that is, that I'm missing something. There's still something missing. I feel like this person has completed me, but, but there's still something missing. There's a, there's a restless. You can go on exotic vacation to some beautiful place and experience rest and relaxation. Your body can be at rest, your, your mind can be at rest, your spirit can be refreshed as you're spending time in the Word, but there's still a restlessness, there's still a disappointment when it's all over, and that's because the Spirit of God in our hearts is always reminding us and stirring us, there's something better, there's something else. This place is not your home. And this is where we can learn something from Jesus. Because that's how he lived. I don't have a place, anywhere to rest. I'm not going to rest in this place. I'm not going to find rest here on planet earth. The birds, they can rest. The fox can rest. But the Son of Man, the Son of God, I'm not going to find any rest because I'm a tender plant. I'm not from this place. I don't belong here. But where does he find his rest? finds his rest when he had accomplished the work that the Father intended him to do. His rest was in doing the Father's will. In the same way in John chapter 4, we read of Jesus saying, he goes to the city of Samaria with his disciples. And it's lunchtime, and everybody's hungry, and so the disciples head off to In-N-Out to get, you know, double-double animal styles and to bring them back to, to Jesus. And Jesus has his encounter there with the woman at the well, and he's ministering to her, and they come back, and they're like, okay, Lord, here's your burger, and, and he's like, you know, I'm not hungry. And they're like, hey, what, what happened? Who fed him? He says, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So here's the deal. When Jesus says to pick up your cross and follow me, he is inviting us to live that kind of life. It's a life that is saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done today in me. Not my will, but your will be done in this situation. It's a life that that is basically saying, Lord, I realize that the place that I'm going to find rest in this world is only going to be in my relationship with you and in your calling upon my life. The only place where I'm going to find rest is when I'm doing what you have called me to do. And that starts with the fact that God has made us for fellowship with him. He's made us to live in fellowship with Him. He's redeemed us, sent His Son to die for us so He could give us life. And God hasn't just sought to save us, but He saved us 
Because he wants to use us. There's a work that he has for you to do. And you will be most fulfilled when you are living in that relationship. And when you are fulfilling that calling that God has placed upon your life in this season and at this time in your life. That's when you will be the most fulfilled. That's when you will find rest. When you find yourself living in that relationship and accomplishing what God has called you to do. You'll never find rest in this world. There will always be a restlessness. Always. Try to please yourself in this world and you will always find frustration. There will always be a sense of not being truly satisfied. But in Jesus, there is rest. Rest for our soul. He was a tender plant. Not from this place, a root out of dry ground, not nourished by this place. He was different. He was different, but not in appearance. In appearance, we're told here, he was ordinary. He was ordinary. It says there that there was no form, the end of verse 2, or comeliness. The, The word comeliness means that there was nothing majestic about him. He laid aside everything Everything that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6, that it caused the angels that were there in heaven to cover their their faces with their wings so as to not look at him because of his glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read that Isaiah sees the Lord and he's sitting on his throne. He's high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And the angels are there, the seraphim are there. And they have all these wings and they take two of their wings and they're covering their face because they're not going to look on his glory. And he laid that aside. He allowed that to be concealed in his humanity. There was nothing majestic about him. There was no beauty, we're told. The idea that there was nothing desirable about him, outward, physically. He wasn't the best-looking dude. He was ordinary. Feel ordinary tonight? Hey, it's okay. Jesus was ordinary. Verse 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The word sorrow there is pain, and grief means suffering and sickness. But I want you to understand that though it says this about Jesus, it doesn't mean that he was bummed out all the time. It didn't mean that he walked around, you know, with a frown and he, you know, was like the, the Eeyore of the New Testament, you know, not at all, no. He wasn't, he wasn't like that. Children, again, I, I bring it, they were drawn to him. You ever see children that want to be around crabby, grumpy people? I remember a preacher was, was preaching on this text, and he, and he was going off on this idea that Jesus was just a sad, bummed out you know, kind of guy all the time, and he always, you know, just was, and some little girl in the front row just interrupted him and said, that, that's not true, Pastor. He's like startled. What do you mean? She says, well, it says in the Bible that the children were drawn to him. And if he looked like you, they wouldn't want to be near him, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. They were drawn to him. People were drawn to him. He enjoyed life. He went to wedding feasts. He went to parties. I bet. Don't get mad at me for saying this, but it's part of Jewish culture. I bet he danced. Really? I'm serious. You know, he's at the wedding feast. I bet he danced, you know. 
He enjoyed life. He enjoyed those celebrations because perhaps in, in that moment, in the inkling, it was, it was a tiny, tiny glimpse of the celebration that awaited him in heaven. Our wedding feast with him. But in the midst of all that he could take in, in enjoyment in in life, everything that, that he could just enjoy about life, there was always this inner sense of perspective that he carried that everything that he saw was flawed. That everything that he saw wasn't the way that he first created it to be. That man was no longer what he intended him to be. That the world that he had created in perfection was now marred by sin. That man was living in this world, was plagued by sin. And he saw it every single day. The grief that comes from when a loved one dies. The grief that comes from sickness. The pain that comes when a marriage blows up. The pain that is caused by religious pride. And he could never put that pain away from his heart. But it wasn't manifested or apparent in his outward appearance. He, in other words, he carried it deep within. But he sensed it. We seek to escape of it, don't we? We want to turn it off. My wife and I sometimes will say, you know, let's watch a, a movie and... And, you know, let's, uh, let's get a comedy. We need to laugh, you know. Sometimes life is just that way. It's like, I, I just want to forget. That's why you can't watch the news 24-7. You know, you'll, you'll shoot yourself. You know, it's too depressing. <laughs> it's too crazy. You need a break. You want to step away from that. You want to forget about it for a little while. But he never escaped it. He never escaped it. It was too clear in his perception of what it was supposed to be. What it was supposed to be was, was etched. What life, what man, what this world was supposed to be was etched into the core of who he was. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Enjoying life, but at the same time, this inner just battle, this inner sense of just sorrow. You know, I was thinking about this today. That the one person that I think sums up this description of the Lord maybe better than anybody I have ever known was Floyd. Because he was one of the most tender men I have ever met. And everyone loved him. Everyone. Little kids, he gave them balloons. They loved him. Teenagers, they loved him. You know, there's, there's ministry manuals out in conferences that talk about how old guys like me can be hip with, with young people. And I don't think it really works, but young people, teenagers, they loved Floyd. They loved him. And all of us, adults, teens, little kids, and he wasn't the kind of guy that stood out in a crowd. He wasn't the kind of guy that commanded a, a lot of attention. He was easily unnoticed. You know, he was short. But you spend five minutes with him and you'll never forget him. That's the kind of guy he was. 
five minutes with him and you just would never forget him. And in the 12 years that I had the privilege of being his pastor and probably 18 years of being his friend, I've never met anyone who loved to rejoice, who loved to rejoice in the goodness and the greatness and the victory of God more than Floyd. And almost every single Wednesday night, he would wait around after service, and he'd come hang out up here as I was talking to people, and he would wait around, and he always had something to say about how the message ministered to him, or about something he was reading, you know, that God showed him, or something that he heard that, that blessed him, and always just wanting some victory to share. Pastor Rob, let me, you know, let me show you this. And he was so excited about it. But at the same time, Floyd, more than anyone that I have ever known, grieved for the pain that sin caused. And oftentimes, there, there would be, it would be with tears. Tears about someone in our fellowship that was sick. He'd come up, oh, I heard about so-and-so. And he just would start to cry. Oh, we got to pray for them. Tears over some Christian that, that had backslid. And a lot of times it was somebody he didn't even know. He was really into sports. And we, we had that connection. And he'd come up and say, you know, so-and-so. Do you know about so-and-so? And some athlete, you know, who had professed Christ. And now he just got arrested or something. And he, and he would cry. His heart's just broken by that. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief, a tender plant like our Lord. And I think that's what happens. That's what happens when you just spend as much time as you can getting close to Jesus. I was thinking today, Lord, make, make my heart more like Floyd's. Make it more like Floyd's. Jesus was a tender plant, a root out of dry ground, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he did that so he could be our high priest who could sympathize with our weakness. And there's not a person in this room tonight who has suffered as much as he has suffered. There's not a physical pain tonight in this room that has gone to the depths of his physical pain. There is not a person in this room who has been forsaken by friends or relatives or loved ones who can even fathom what it really means when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went through all of that so that he could be our savior, so that he could be our high priest. But it says that we despised him, that we didn't esteem him. We were looking for a conqueror, and he came as a carpenter. We were looking for a, a lion. He came as a lamb. We were looking for a sovereign. And they heard him say, my kingdom is not of this world. But, but folks, we can esteem him tonight. We can esteem him tonight. We need to esteem him tonight. We can esteem him tonight by coming to him with hearts of gratitude and hearts of dependence. That you and I can say, Lord, I'm in pain. I feel forsaken. I feel lonely. Lord, I'm out of strength. And we know that he's the high priest who can sympathize with us, 
who fellowships with us, who relates to us, who would say to us, I was a tender plant. I was a root out of dry ground, and I didn't find nourishment from anything that this life has to offer so that we can come tonight and know that we can receive from Jesus what we cannot receive from this world, that we can receive of it from Him. Tonight, we need to esteem Him as we come to the table. Tonight, we need to come. We need to say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to pick up my cross. And I want to say to you, Lord, in my life and in whatever situation there might be, not my will, but your will be done because, Lord, I understand the only rest I'm going to find is is when I'm in that place with you. And I'm in that place accomplishing and doing and and allowing you to work in my life. Lord, you are my all in all. There's where we find our rest, just like he did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. And tonight, God, we want to esteem you. God, we want to just glory in your son, in your sacrifice. Lord, tonight we want to esteem you by saying to you, Lord, we want to pick up our cross. We want to walk with you in this life. Saying, not my will, but your will be done. We want to esteem you tonight by by recognizing and admitting and declaring and rejoicing in the fact that, Lord, we're nothing without you. Our dependency is upon you. And that's the only way that we find our rest is in you. Lord, we want to esteem you tonight with hearts of gratitude and just saying thank you for humbling yourself, for becoming that humble servant so that we could live, so that we could have life. We esteem you tonight, God. We esteem you tonight, Jesus, as we come to you now in worship. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you feel our pain, that you know our hearts. And tonight, we esteem you by acknowledging, Lord, you're the answer. It's you. So we draw near to you tonight. Thank you, Lord.